As I said in the last part of this series, the first argument that I want to address is the one that most pre-trib teachers hold up as irrefutable. As you'll see, that is not even close to being the truth. The, the current generation of Christians have been raised and taught with an unprecedented influence from books, movies, and ad campaigns from the entertainment and publishing industries. Books such as Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth and Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series of books and movies have had more to do with people's view of end-time events and prophecy than any serious Bible study, really. Many believers in conservative evangelical Christianity have only ever heard one view of the rapture their entire lives. As a result of this, they perceive anything different to be wholly foreign and downright heretical simply because it is unknown to them. The idea that they may have been raised and discipled with the wrong interpretation simply just doesn't occur to them. Tim LaHaye, who is probably one of the most well-known pre-trib proponents simply because of the left-behind books and movies, believes that Revelation 3.10 is a quote-unquote powerful support for pre-tribulationism. The argument from this passage is usually something along these lines. The person, the teacher says, well, Jesus promised the church in Philadelphia that he would keep them from the hour of temptation, since the word from has the sense of out of, and the hour of temptation is said to come upon all those that dwell upon the earth. This is obviously a picture of a pre-trib rapture. God will take the faithful church out of the earth to protect them from the hour of temptation that is on all those that dwell upon the earth. Now let's read the passage from which this argument comes. I will, I'm just going to read the whole message to the church of Philadelphia in Revelation chapter 3 because you can't take a verse out of context. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews, and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to, drive, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast, hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches." That's Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. First, let's point out that there was no explicit reference to rapture seven years before the second coming or even the tribulation. There were only statements or phrases that are presumed to refer to them. It must also be admitted again that not a single person would have connected this verse 
Revelation 3.10, to a pre-trip rapture theory unless it had been told to them prior. I believe any honest believer would have to admit that. This is even more apparent since this verse was not taught as having anything to do with the rapture, even once, until the 19th century. And that is because support for this new doctrine needed to be found. It is easy to find quote-unquote support for something when you are told emphatically that it is already in the Bible. But before we look at the grammar of this verse, let's first consider how this passage was normally interpreted before John Darby, dispensationalism, and the pre-tribulation rapture theory was being propagated in prophecy conferences in the 19th and early 20th centuries, like the Niagara Conferences. If you make even a cursory search through church history, you will find that the phrase, hour of temptation, from this passage, was not originally understood to mean the seven-year tribulation as pre-tribulationists teach. Commentator Adam Clark wrote, even as late as 1810, quote, Many understand by the hour of temptation the persecution under Trajan, or Trajan, which was greater and more extensive than the preceding ones under Nero and Domitian. History shows that this interpretation fits the timeline of when the book of Revelation was written very well. While preterists try to say that the Revelation was penned during the reign of Emperor Nero in the 60s AD, the support for this view falls apart easily when it's critically examined. The evidence supports the Apostle John to have been exiled to the Isle of Patmos during the reign of the Roman Emperor Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96 AD. Now, after Domitian, there was a brief period of relative peace for the believers during the short reign of Nerva from 96 to 98 AD, before another period of persecution at the hands of Trajan in 98 to 118 AD. AD. It is recorded that Ignatius of Antioch, an early Christian bishop, was executed during the reign of Trajan. The writer and historian Pliny the Younger also recorded many things during this period, being in communication with the emperor himself. Tertullian, writing in the 3rd century, said that Emperor Trajan's standards were a, quote, self-contradiction, since Christians were not to be sought but if accused, they were to be punished. This left the door wide open for locals with a distaste for the quote-unquote new religion to take matters into their own hands against the Christians. John Wesley, writing in the 18th century, had this to say in his notes on this verse. He says, quote, Which hour shall come upon the whole earth, the whole Roman Empire? It went over the Christians and over the Jews and heathens, though in a very different manner. This was the time of the persecution under the seemingly virtuous emperor Trajan. The two preceding persecutions were under those monsters Nero and Domitian, but Trajan was so admired for his goodness and his persecution was of such a nature that it was a temptation indeed and did, not, and did thoroughly try them that dwell upon the earth. Now, when Pliny the Younger asked Emperor Trajan how he should go about dealing with the Christians, Trajan's response was, quote, They should not be searched for, but when accused and convicted, they should be punished. Yet, if anyone denies that he has been a Christian and proves it by action, namely by worshiping our gods, he is to be pardoned upon his repentance. 
Now, Christ's admonition of holding fast and overcoming makes complete sense in this context. It was not uncommon for the local governors to categorize Christians as a quote-unquote secret union or a religio illicita. Under Roman law, this gave them liberty to punish the believers quite severely. So the question that must be asked is, is this message that was originally for the literal church in Philadelphia in the first century prophetic? For them at the time that they would receive it, yes. You have to remember to interpret the scriptures in their original context. This persecution had not yet happened when the Revelation was written, but it was quickly coming. 98 AD and 107 AD are the commonly held years of the heavy persecution. Since the plain sense of this passage makes perfect sense when taken in its proper context historically and fulfills the qualifications of Christ's statements, we have no reason to assume that there would be a future prophetic application to a yet undefined time. This would be the very definition of arbitrary. Now, regarding the text of the passage itself, the normal use of Revelation 3.10 to support a pre-trib rapture revolves around the phrase, kept from the hour of temptation. The phrase hour of temptation is interpreted as the seven-year tribulation, and the preceding preposition, ek, usually translated as from, which is commonly translated as from or out of in a number of other places, is emphasized greatly in this argument. Much is said by pre-trib adherents, however, about how the Greek preposition ek has the sense of out of in Revelation 3.10. It is argued that because the preposition ek means from or out of, that the church in Philadelphia is being promised to be kept out of the hour of temptation. In essence, Pre-tribulationists argue that this is a promise for the faithful believers in that church that they would not enter the seven-year tribulation. Um, They also extend this promise to faithful believers today. Now, it is true that ek has the meaning out of, but not necessarily how they say it does. The irony of King James-only teachers hinging so much on a Greek preposition is actually quite ironic and to a certain degree hypocritical, especially whenever they can't even understand the Greek preposition correctly. It is important for us to understand the nature and function of prepositions to understand this argument. Prepositions are words that define spatial relationships between things. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defines a preposition as, quote, In grammar, a word usually put before another to express some relation or quality, action or motion, to or from the thing specified, as medicine salutary to health, music agreeable to the ear, virtue is valued for its excellence, a man is writing to Oxford from London, prepositions govern cases of nouns, and in English are sometimes placed after the word is governed, as which person do you speak to, for to which person do you speak. Now, prepositions are words that tell you how something is moving or what state it is in in relation to something else. In Greek, which is the original language this passage was written in, prepositions have more expression than in English and have specific spatial relationships associated with them. The English translation from is an accurate translation of the Greek preposition ek. The sense of the word being out of is also a correct understanding of it. However, 
To say that this means that the church of Philadelphia will not enter the hour of temptation is false and is not an accurate representation of the meaning of the word. The teacher who says this has not understood the spatial relationship intended by the preposition, or he's just straining at a gnat to get his doctrine through. He is reading the English in a different sense than intended by the Greek original. It's being read as kept from the hour, as though it means you will never enter. And that's just plain wrong. If you look at the corresponding notes or slide, you will see a chart. It's a chart that is common in biblical Greek grammars. Any of them. Notice the spatial relationship as defined or illustrated by the preposition ek in the lower right. When you look at it, you'll see I have a circle around where it's indicating the Greek preposition ek. Right, I had a little arrow pointing to it to help you to, to see it on this chart. And so if you, if you look, you will see a circle, a big circle, with various arrowed lines indicating direction or movement. These lines are visually depicting the meaning of prepositions, the spatial relationship. The line is moving in relationship to the circle and indicating to you how the spatial relationship that is intended by the word, right? And so as illustrated by the line with the arrow pointing to ek, the preposition ek does indeed convey the meaning out of. The problem that is missed or ignored by most teachers is that it conveys the meaning emergence from something. The line originates inside the circle and moves out of it. And this is what the preposition ek conveys, emergence from within. It does not mean does not enter. This verse cannot be used to say that the church does not enter the hour of temptation without seriously twisting this text. If you open any Greek lexicon or dictionary, you will see that the general sense of the preposition is indeed out of or from. Strong's Concordance, a very basic one most people have, says this, quote, a primary preposition denoting origin, the point whence motion or action proceeds from, out, of place, time, or cause, literally or figuratively, direct or remote. It indicates the origin from where the motion or action proceeds. In our verse, Revelation 3.10, the origin is the hour of temptation. This means that the Church of Philadelphia was promised to emerge from the hour, the origin of the hour of temptation. The grammar of the passage states that Christ was promising the believers in Philadelphia that they would emerge from the hour of temptation that they were about to endure. He was not promising them that they would never enter it. He was promising them that they would be protected or kept through the hour of temptation and would emerge out of the other side victorious. It may then be asked, but doesn't the meaning out of imply them being remote, removed entirely? Well, it is true that the preposition means out of or from, and we just talked about that. The verb that is coupled with it is important to understand the, in, to understand the context of how it is used. In our verse, Revelation 3.10, the verb that is usually translated kept is tereo, meaning keep, guard, observe. The coupling of the preposition ek with the verb tereo 
only occurs one other time in the New Testament, and it is by the same author, John, and the same speaker is being recorded, Christ. So let's see how the exact same Greek phrase is meant in that place, the only other place that these two are combined in the New Testament. It's in John 17, 15, where Christ is saying, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Now, the first part of John 17, 15, because the Greek preposition ek appears twice in this verse. In the first part, the same preposition ek clearly shows the meaning of taking out of a place that the disciples were in. And so the disciples were on the earth, and Christ prays that they should not be taken out of the world. This again showing a removing from an origin. However, the verb for take in the first half of the verse is different than the verb for keep in the second half of the verse. He uses the Greek verb iro to indicate a physical removing from the world and not the verb tereo. And this is important to grasp because we're talking about the same apostle recording the same person's words, Jesus' words. This is important because Christ switches verbs when using the same preposition to indicate a difference in meaning. It is the same exact Greek preposition and verb in the second half of John 17.15 as in Revelation 3.10, yet he clearly intends the meaning for them to be protected through affliction. He says, I don't want you to remove them from the world that they were in, but that you should keep them from, guard them from, the evil that surrounds them in the world. The fact that Christ uses the same verb and preposition to indicate that his desire was to protect them from the evil that was around them in the world in John 17, 15 is a strong indicator that he means the same in Revelation 3:10, where the exact same Greek words are used. His statement was that he would guard them from the hour of temptation that they would encounter and that they would come out of it. Tim LaHaye has stated that this verse, Revelation 3.10, is a, quote, powerful support for a pre-trib rapture. Regarding this verse, he writes, quote, The guarantee of rapture before tribulation could hardly be more powerful, end quote. And in the paragraph before he makes that statement, in No Fear of the Storm, his book, he references an article by the editor of Our Hope magazine, where the editor references the use of this preposition, ek, right? Our little preposition we're looking at here. The passages used as an example are Matthew 2.15, 7.5, 15.19, and Revelation 3.16. And so the Tim LaHaye is referencing these as an example of how the word ek is used, right? And he believes that it supports his view. Well, let's let's read these passages and really look at them. In Matthew 2.15, we read, And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Matthew 7.5, Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. 
Matthew 15, 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Matthew 27, 53, And came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. Revelation 3, 16, So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And so I completely agree with Tim LaHaye on this point. These are all verses that accurately convey the use of the preposition ek, as it's used in Revelation 3.10. Allow me to summarize the point intended. God called his son out of Egypt because he was in Egypt. The mote must be cast out of the eye because it was in the eye. These things proceed out of the heart because that is where they are. The bodies come out came out of the graves because they were in the graves. Jesus will spew them out of his mouth because they were in him. It is clear from these examples the history of how this verse has been understood, as well as the definition of spatial relationship conveyed by the preposition grammatically, that this verse cannot be used to teach a secret pre-trib rapture. Perhaps this is why John Walverb, who was called the Dean of Pre-Tribulationism by Tim LaHaye, had this to say regarding Revelation 3.10. He says, quote, It may not be decisively a support for pre-tribulationism. It is ironic that Walverb makes this statement after devoting several pages to try to say that it does support a pre-tribulation rapture. Commentators reluctant to give up this point usually just sit on the fence about the issue and just state it as a possibility. Others, however, are more honest. Alexander McLaren said, quote, He does not promise to keep us at a distance from temptation, so as that we shall not have to face it, but from means, as any that can look at the original will see, that he will save us out of it, we having previously been in it so as that the hour of temptation shall not be the hour of falling. The image conveyed is very simple. You cannot be taken out of something that you were never in to begin with. This is the meaning of the passage and preposition. The Church of Philadelphia would be kept, preserved, protected from the hour of temptation because they would be safely brought out of it. The believers in Philadelphia were being promised that they would be preserved through the coming hour of temptation and that they would safely emerge from it. This is truly a promise to be grateful for. It is not, however, a support for anything else. LaHaye, as well as others, strenuously defends this argument. He acknowledged that it has been attacked before. In his book, he says, quote, During the past 50 years or so, some opposition to this interpretation has arisen. One of our Left Behind readers even wrote to question that our Lord's promise to the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10 included the present-day Bible-believing church. He goes on, She claimed that the promise was given only to the little Church of Philadelphia, nothing more. We wrote her back and suggested that it couldn't mean merely that little church because it was completely destroyed by the Turkish invasion in 1382, long before the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. That period still has not come. And you see, there is an error in LaHaye's reasoning here. If the Church of Philadelphia was promised to be kept from the hour of temptation, and that means that they would never enter the tribulation period, then where is the error? It would still be true. 
if that is the intended meaning by Christ as recorded by John, then even in that sense, this passage is still true and does not support a preacher rapture either. The historical literal church of Philadelphia never entered the seven-year tribulation. Why would he object to that interpretation? Then, unless it is only because he would not have a a verse to support the preacher rapture theory. Now, I don't want to assume dishonesty on his part, but it's very likely that he was simply blinded by his assumptions. And if you read his writings, you see he does have bias regarding this, and his own words show that he has an emotional reason to cling to this because of the emotional impact of the death of his father when he was young. I hesitate to continue with another aspect of this argument that may seem unrelated, but because it is so common, I will discuss it as well. There is wide acceptance that there is a basic outline for the book of Revelation based on a verse in chapter 1. And I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm saying this is just important to know beforehand. Revelation 1.19, which says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now, there are things which John has seen in the context, as his vision of the glorified Christ in chapter 1. The things which are the seven literal churches Jesus addresses in chapters 2 and 3. And the things which shall be hereafter, future events that have not yet occurred. And this is all relative to the passage and its context in Revelation chapter 1. If you go to a conservative evangelical church, then you most likely have heard this at least referenced when the book of Revelation is taught, if, if it's been taught in your church at all. There is a problem, however, when people begin to interpret the things which are, present tense, as though they are prophetic without justifiable reason. The common interpretation of the seven letters in chapters 2 and 3 are that they are prophetic pictures of this timeline of church history. Harold Wilmington said, quote, The characteristics of these churches serve as a prophetical preview of the seven great periods in Christendom from Pentecost to the rapture. At the beginning of the 20th century, C.I. Schofield said in his Dispensational Reference Bible, quote, Again, these messages, by their very terms, go beyond the local assemblies mentioned. Most conclusively of all, these messages do present an exact foreview of the spiritual history of the church and in this precise order. Many works even try to specify the exact years that each period covers. Not only is there no reason in the text to assume such a prophetic interpretation, but trying to make the letters fit neatly into church history proves to be an impossible task. This application of Revelation 2 and 3 has no support from the text. Unlike other prophetic passages that are clearly intended to be interpreted as symbolic, Even if we were to indulge this application for a moment, we would see several difficulties begin to emerge. If these chapters are to be considered a quote-unquote foreview of the spiritual history of the church, would we not expect a promise of a pre-tribulation rapture to be at the end? In fact, that's exactly what is intended, right? If the church is raptured at the end of the church age, supposedly, right? And according to John Walvoord, the saints that are saved during the tribulation aren't part of the church. We talked a little bit about that last time. 
then we would expect the promise for a rapture to be at the very end of this timeline, right? And so this would mean that the promise to be kept from the hour of temptation, if we assumed a preacher of understanding of it, should be in the letter to the church of Laodicea and not Philadelphia. Otherwise, according to some quote-unquote guides to the Bible, and their specific dates for these periods of church history, the rapture should have happened in the mid-1800s. Furthermore, application is made by teachers saying that Philadelphia pictures all faithful believers of all ages. This then allows them to say that even though Laodicea is last, according to their quote-unquote timeline, this promise to the church of Philadelphia would apply to faithful believers of all ages, right? For if the church today is in the Laodicean quote-unquote period, how do we take a promise that is applied to the Philadelphian church period and apply it to ourselves today? In order for teachers to apply this verse, Revelation 3.10, the way pre-tribbers do, we must also remove it from the assumed prophetic timeline to say that now these church periods overlap. So now it is a timeline, and this timeline is not linear, which is the definition of a timeline. Even Schofield said it was, quote, in this precise order. We are now multiple levels of assumption deep to arrive at this application. For example, Assumption 1, Revelation 2 and 3 are prophetic. Assumption 2, Revelation 2 and 3 picture the entirety of church history. Assumption 3, the Church of Philadelphia is promised to be kept out of the hour of temptation, and this means a preacher rapture. Assumption four, this promise is not only to a previous church period, but to whatever believers are alive on the earth when the seven-year tribulation begins. All these assumptions have no basis in the text of Scripture and are by definition unbiblical. This method of handling the Scriptures is the same type of allegorizing and reading into the Scriptures that many of these same teachers preach against. The primary rule in understanding and interpreting the scriptures is about the context of the original audience. Gordon Fee says it very well. He says, quote, On this one thing, however, there must surely be agreement. A text cannot mean what it never meant. Or, to put that in a positive way, the true meaning of the biblical text for us is what God originally intended it to mean when it was first spoken. Ask yourself, how would the original audience have understood Christ's message to them? I submit that the interpretation of Revelation 3.10 by pre-tribulation teachers is an impossible understanding of the text. The original audience could never have conceived of the notion of a timeline of church history, or even, as has been documented, of a secret pre-tribulation rapture. They would, however, easily conceive of a coming persecution under a future Roman emperor, i.e. Trajan, as has been the historical understanding of this passage. It is arbitrary to take Revelation 3.10 and apply it in the manner that pre-trib teachers do. It is a wonder why they do not also take Revelation 2.10 and apply it in this manner. Because it says, quote, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now, I am, of course, not saying that this passage should be taken as a support for any view of the rapture, 
But if pre-tribulationists can take Revelation 3.10 out of context, arbitrarily claim is prophetic, then force it to support their preconceived notions, then why can't I do the same with a different verse to support a post-tribulation view? Arbitrariness is a fickle thing because it goes both ways. Neither of these verses are referring to the rapture of the church, and it is irresponsible handling of the word of God to claim so. To summarize, this argument and verse fails to support a secret preacher rapture on the basis of context and grammar, historical facts, and doubts about this verse even come from the dean of pre-tribulationism himself, John Walford. The application and interpretation of preacher adherence is simply not tenable or reasonable. I, myself, used this verse in time past just the same as preacher rapture supporters do now. You know, you keep it in a holster. Somebody says, well, show me where the preacher of rapture is, and you'll immediately pull out Revelation 3.10, having never actually studied the issue yourself, but because somebody told you it meant that, and you've always only understood it that way. But it doesn't take much digging and critical evaluation to see that a sincere Bible student cannot support so untenable an interpretation without compromising their biblical integrity. When we fail to examine an interpretation critically, we deal with God's Word as though it is a fickle thing, instead of what it is, God's word. We should be afraid, lest at any time we put words in his mouth that he never said nor intended.